From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a podcast dedicated to the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Ryan Gort, and today I'm joined by Brandon Hill. Hey guys, Brandon, uh, writer and editor with Central Sauce. Also, you should subscribe to my newsletter uh, for my site that just came out. You can find it in with the link in my bio on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. Check it out. All right, I'm subscribe. Mickey Hellerback. Hey, what's up, guys? Uh, I'm Mickey Hellerback. Um, my latest thing uh, for Central Sauce is I put out an article about uh, the rapper's movement into media, uh, which is just a, uh, a feature piece on all of the different rappers, including uh, Lil Wayne with Young Money Radio and Nori with Drink Champs, who have uh, made a transition into media. Um, and also look out for an interview I did with um, London's Zion coming out on Notion magazine soon. Dope. And yeah, Ryan Gore, writer at Central Source, recently released my uh, long worked on piece about Milo, aka Rap Ferreira, this album he told you to think. Uh, that came out a couple of weeks ago, and I recently did an interview with uh, Chris Keys, which I'm yet to do any work on, but I've recorded the interview, so watch out for that. That's the important uh, part. That's the important part, yeah. <laughs> okay, today on the show we have articles about um, streaming services and the payout they give during the pandemic, um, an article, an interview with uh, Jonah y- Yano, and an article about death by Yo. So... Uh, <laughs> Seeing as we're halfway through the year, we want to do a little top five album so far. So, uh, yeah, I'll throw it to Brandon, and you can give us the oh. top five. All right, right off the bat. Okay, so... Let's go. Um, I got my top five, and I'm going to start at number five. So, number five, I have What Kind of Music by Tom Mish and Yusuf Days. And one of the reasons this album I thought was like one of my favorites of the year is because I had no clue who Tom Mish was previously before finding out like a week late that this album came out uh, when I was just on like a YouTube binge and came across Night Rider by Freddie or with Freddie Gibbs. So that like led me to the rest of the album and incredible like jazz hip hop blended project. Just incredible. Um, at number four, I have Better by Deontay Hitchcock who we talked about on the last episode of the podcast. And I just think, um, you know, we even talked about Yo described the album as spiritually aware. uh, And I think that was, you know, one of the reasons it clicked with me really well. Then number three, I've got Circles by Mac Miller, um, which even thinking of the fact that, you know, like Circles came out in 2020 seems insane because it seems like that was so long ago. Um, And, you know, like I was talking about before, we even got on the pod, I think Circles is going to stay in my top five, I mean, no matter what. I just, like, I'm unable to separate, you know, the emotional significance of the album uh, from the music itself, and, I mean, that's also just a testament to how well done it is. And at number two, I've got, Ryan's going to be excited for this one, I've got Innocent Country 2 by Quelle Chris, um, yes. <clears throat> which is another artist that... I'm actually I'm surprised at like, how many albums are in my top five by artists that aren't like you know in my realm of like these are my favorite artists and I listen to all their shit and I know mm-hmm. everything about them. Um, you know Ryan's been putting me on Aquila Chris for a while, uh, but I think what really made this one click is Chris Keys and the production, like the piano and shit like that. Um, 
I mean, the album has vocal range from new or like sonic range from New Job Ace to Earl Sweatshirt's Summer Rap Songs. Um, and it all fits in a very like thematic context. Brian could talk about it a lot more than I could, I'm sure. But like that, that, al- that album is incredible. Um, and then at number one, I've got uh, maybe a little basic here, but I'm going to go with Alfredo by Freddie Gibbs. Um, I think, you know, it, like the Alchemist, first of all, it's just been killing shit this year. I've got honorable mentions for Boldy James um, and Lulu. Um, but I think Alfredo stands out to me just because it's got some of Freddie Gibbs best verses on it, like, especially on the back half, um, God and God is perfect. I was, has just been stuck at my head, like nonstop from that album. So yeah, that's my top five. So I'm going to throw it back at Ryan since Ryan called me out first. <laughs> yeah. So that has a solid top five, actually, like. Alfredo's a great album. Didn't make mine, like, it was so close, but that's definitely an honorable mention for me. But, uh, yeah, my number five is uh, Way to the World by Mike. This is a pretty recent album. Uh, I think it came out, like, the end of June. But Mike's music just sits with me. Like, it just clicks immediately with me. Like, um, this probably isn't his most celebrated project, especially considering how much um, praise was given to his last album, Tears of Joy. But this one just sounds like him being so comfortable with the sound. And I was able just to enter that realm of his music straight away. And it was awesome. Um, number four is Ada Irin by Navy Blue. Something that I've been anticipating for a while because Navy Blue is one of my favourite producers in the world. And yeah, he's just an expert looping soul samples and just speaking on depression and mental health and love in a way that just hits so hard. Number three, uh, Circles by Mac Miller. Same placement as Brandon. It's just, um, you say it's. it feels like it didn't come out in 2020, but I feel like it's, you can't remove it from this year. I feel like it's such a perfect way to say goodbye to Mac and like everyone involved with the album, just give yourself a pat on the back because it was genuinely the most perfect way to say goodbye to Mac. Uh, number two, Purple Moonlight Pages by Rap Ferreira 8. eight. FKA Milo, formerly known as Milo. Um, I love this album so much. Like, the new name didn't mean he was going to do the same stuff, but, like, just with a new name. It was a completely new direction for him. So dynamic, so jazzy, but keeping that commentary about art that uh, Milo is known for. And number one, Chris Keys and Kole Chris, Innocent Country 2. It's so good. <laughs> like, when it came out, I remember I saw someone on Twitter describe it as having uh, magic healing powers, and that's the best description of her I can, I can think of. Instrumentally, lyrically, everyone just puts their all into it. It's just gorgeous, and it has some of my favorite verses of the year, from Cavalier on Sacred Safe to Earl Sweatshirt and Denmark Vesey on Mirage. Just like Mirage is one of my favorite songs on there too. Yeah. It's unbelievable. It just feels like it penetrates into the depths of human existence. And um, Sudden Death is the best song of the year, hands down. I don't care. Like, nothing else could come out this year that will be better than Sudden Death because it is. it sounds like it was made at the beginning of time. I love it. And being able to speak with Chris Keyes about the creation of the album, I just know how much love has gone into it. So, yeah. That's so awesome um, that you got that interview too, by the way. And, like, having... Because like, I've listened to the interview already, so... Um, you like check this out when it comes out because it's it's such a good interview. He's such a cool person. He's so cool. 
he's so nice and um he just understands his art so well and he comes through in the album so yeah Mickey, go for it. Yeah, um, I want to do my two kind of honorable mentions first. They're both Maryland artists. One of them's a Baltimore artist. Um, one is uh, Brent Fias, Fuck the World. Um, I, I just, I still to this day continue to go back to it, and it came out pretty early on in the year. I think it's just really a solid project with no skips. And then uh, Baltimore's Zadia uh, released a project called Vacants. Uh, literally yesterday, I saw her do with her band one of her East Baltimore tour stops, literally in the middle of Harford Road, if you know Baltimore. Um, and it was really, really cool, a really creative way to do live music, even with the pandemic. Um, but yeah, definitely check that album out. Um, but at five, um, the one consistent album that we all have on, on our list, I think, is uh, Circles by Mac Miller. Um, and it needs to be mentioned, uh, the composition that John Bryan did to do the album when he was um, first recording with Mac and to just compose it um, as a posthumous album. And I, when I was thinking about it, I don't think I've heard a posthumous album that album that connected with me as much as this one. I think it's just so well composed. It's really a complete body of work. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I, it's Mac passed at when he was 26. And at that time I was also 26 and it really kind of hit home and made me think about, <laughs> uh, mortality, which we're going to talk about later in the podcast based on our- Ooh, the transition. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And number four, I have a uh, written testimony by J Electronica and I like it so much kind of separating it from what the expectation of the album is. I think it's, um, it's more what the album's more about for me is the kind of two pronged approach to attacking uh, the system and systemic oppression that's so impressive to me. Um, I think it's way more than what we all were expecting as like a full body of work from J Electronica, and the album actually means something much deeper. Uh, for number three, I have uh, like Brandon, I have Better by Deontay Hitchcock, and to me, it's just my favorite. Uh, rap album of the year specifically because it has the most um, direct through line of any album um, and it really has to do with like self-discovery and self-reflection but while it's also um, so so cerebral in its composition it's also incredibly human and in the moment um, and then number two I have After Hours by The Weeknd I think it's just like an unbelievable body of work and maybe his most impressive so far and my favorite um, album from him since House of Balloons I think um, and then at number one, uh, we're going to talk about it in my piece later. Uh, my favorite album this year is Souvenir by Joni Yano, if you haven't heard it. Um, I don't now I'm forgetting exactly how you worded, describe, uh, Ryan, how you described the Quelle Chris about something about... Uh, the Magic healing powers. <laughs> That's not the phrase I was going to use, but yeah, there's something. Oh. <laughs> it's something, you said something about the psychology of, maybe not. I don't know, but I think Jonah Yano is really just like, it's everything that I um, connect to about music, and I find myself just craving listening to that album more than any other album. I think it just connects um, an incredible composition with um, spot-on, very specific melodies to uh, lyrics that match it um, all the way through, and it has a really clear through line uh, that we'll talk about later. I can't wait to yeah. hear you talk about that album, honestly. Oh, like, that's Same. one of the the first impressions I got from that piece and then from listening to the music man. was I really just, I can't wait to hear Nikki, t Mickey talk about Dude, this album. I love that. I, I literally still listen to at least a few songs and, and usually the whole album almost every day. Yeah. I mean, I listened to the project while I was reading the piece and I'm, it was just beautiful. It was so gorgeous. I wish I had listened to it earlier. Maybe it might've been in my top five cause it's so, 
Yeah, it's so personal, but we'll get we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Okay. So, firstly, um, there's this piece piece that I brought from Pitchfork, uh, and it's written by Andy Kush. And it's called How Musicians Are Fighting for Streaming Pay During the Pandemic. So, as we know, during the pandemic, artists can't tour. And if you know anything about the finances of artists, that's how they get their money. We like to think that album sales are everything, but really that's um, very minor in comparison to what artists get from tour, and it's basically what they live off, is their tour money. Um, And this article is ridiculously in-depth. It takes the word long form and makes full use of the word long form and the idea of making a long form article. And it acts as kind of um, a database almost, like to, um, I'm I'm trying to word this properly, like try and do it justice. Because the amount of information this piece gives you, it's not a piece that throws information at you. It's, It's a piece that has the pure aim of help, wanting to help you understand how this stuff is broken down. So to get into it, it's basically talking about how streaming streaming services like Spotify just aren't paying artists enough. And during a pandemic, where that's pretty much your primary source of income, is nowhere near enough to survive on. Like at the start of the article, um, Andy provides these figures. So you have this band called Stolen Jars, and they have 22,000 monthly listeners on Spotify. And that equates to a maximum of $2,000 a year. And that's while being an indie artist. Think about how an artist on a label who's getting a percentage of that is going to live. It's it's pennies, really. Like, if you go to um, an artist named Tasmin Little, who's a violinist, she gets 3.5 million total streams in six months. She was paid £12.34. £12.34 for six months worth of streaming. 3.5 million streams. And it's not enough. And what the article does well, what Andy does very well, is to break down what it means to earn money per stream. Because we kind of hear that phrase thrown around a lot, like, oh, streaming services don't pay enough, they don't give enough per stream. But that is kind of a myth when it comes to Spotify, at least. He breaks it down and makes and makes the point that um, the money allocated to an artist is based on the total revenue from every subscriber that Spotify gets. So you can't just raise the amount given per stream because that's not how they calculate um, the money given to artists. And... That just makes the issue so, so much more complex. Because you have these unions, they have this union of musicians and allied workers and the Keep Music Alive Alliance, which are collections of collectives of artists um, who are campaigning for their rights, really. And it brings up a deeper issue about how in society, artists and musicians in particular, their uh, work is taken for granted in a way. Like, we don't see it as... um, a normal job, I guess, in quotation marks. Like, so you don't get this normal salary, you don't get these kind of... Like, what job is going to pay you £12.34 for six months' worth of work? That should not be legal in any way. 
So yeah, this I'm trying to I'm kind of jumping around because there's so much information in this article. I'm trying to kind of encapsulate it, but I guess the um, main victory of this article is having it laid out and documented in one place and having balanced arguments, not just saying yes. streaming services pay more, pay more. It's saying no, this is complex, and we need like artists need Spotify and Spotify needs artists. But no one's getting the deal, best deal here. It's us listeners getting the best deal. And in a way, we've been kind of spoiled. That's not Andy speaking, that's kind of me speaking on <laughs> what I've gained from the article. It's like, we've kind of been spoiled by the streaming services thing because we've given, been given this kind of cheap access to music. And the only way for the artists to get paid fairly is really us paying more. But now that we've... Like if we if Spotify raised their prices to twenty quid a month, people are way too um, spoiled to go with that. Even though it would be so beneficial to artists, perhaps as I said, the issue is very very deep. Um, I wanted to read a line out, and he said the pandemic is only exacerbating the inequalities of a system that is rigged against the people who make it run. Oh my god, Ryan, I literally wrote down that same quote. <laughs> that was what you stole my opening. I'll throw it to you now then, because I've been speaking for a while. That like, is how do you feel when you read that crazy. That is the literal one quote I wrote down, <laughs> according to artists. Well, I just think that that's right. It was funny, because you then, and you even set me up for it so well, because you ended with like, I just... You know, there's not a great way to sum it all up. And I was going to be like, this is the quote that sums it all up. Um, But I think, yeah, I just think that that really does sum everything up, not just in music, but that is the exact reality. I mean, at least for me specifically in America for every single system that is functioning. For sure. Um, I think that... uh, It was crazy how many parallels I was drawing to all of these different systems that were just totally getting exposed by uh the situation that the pandemic has created um and then Mm -hmm. uh very good point i think what's what's interesting to me is for sure there's some level of like there's always talk about reform and what the pandemic specifically has exposed in all of these systems is that reform reforming a system that was broken to begin with is not going to work. So kind of what they suggest in this article is the only way to really even go about this to any way that it's makes make that to any, in any way that it makes sense is to restructure the thing entirely, which is an Mm -hmm. exact parallel to what, um, to what the, the pandemic, well, uh, yes. And a million things in America, uh, specifically, I mean, climate change, Medicare, um, I, uh-huh. I think of the Green New Deal as being like when you really look at the pandemic, the only way that we can go forward with climate change, Medicare for all being the only real realistic way to go forward with making sure everybody has Medicare. Now it's even more exposed specifically with the health crisis, UBI, how really like so many people, as soon as these moratoriums on rent on uh, uh, not a rent moratoriums on eviction stop that. People are just not going to be able to pay their rent as UBI is an entire, either creating an entirely new system or, but in order to do that, you have to break down the one that already exists. Uh Um, and then it's, that's the other thing that they mentioned in the article, which you were talking about, Ryan is like that maybe, maybe people should be paying more, but how in the world can you ask people to pay more right now? 
And I think it's kind of, yeah. I think it's kind yeah. of interesting because on some level, potentially, maybe people would have already started paying more if the initial amount that they were asked to pay was more. But I think now with the circumstance to ask people who are accustomed to now paying a certain amount to pay more specifically with the, the way that the world is, I think is going to be really hard. Um, and then, I mean, it's got to be made competitive. And I do agree that on some level to make, make it um, sustainable for any artist that maybe the price has to ra- to raise a little bit for streaming services. But um, I don't know. I just think, I think kind of the conclusion that they came to in the article is that's just such a hard ask. Yeah. And to put that into like perspective, uh, the Keep Music Alive Alliance, they've suggested this um, user-based approach where the user's money goes directly to the artist that they listen to. So kind of how we logically kind of make music seem in the first place like oh i'm streaming these artists so my money is going to them or buying their merch and going to their shows yeah yeah so uh what i suggest is like if i stream um our sweatshirt for a month then the money i pay my monthly subscription goes directly to our sweatshirt minus what spotify takes up but um what ended up happening with that is that um Actually, I've completely forgotten it now. Oh, this is terrible. Do you guys remember what it was? Are you talking about how um, as Spotify makes playlists and they push, you know, more like they Spotify pushes content that tries to get their users listening more, which increases the total number of plays, um, which then lessens the share of like it lessens the value of a single play especially for an artist whose music isn't getting recommended by these listen more algorithms. Um, yeah. Which, I mean, if that's a good, a good spot to pass it off to me, that's actually kind of yeah, like yeah, the, yeah. the core of the core of what I appreciated about this article. So um, I said, you know, I said at the, before we were even recording how I thought that this was one of the most, like single most important articles we've actually discussed on the podcast. Um, and I say that in a way that, you know, we, we we talk about a lot of content that you know it's 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 either thought provoking or it's really well done or you know it it addresses like a systemic issue that is like an omnipresent thing. Um, but what this article, what makes this one so important, is that the information in this article is stuff that we need to know now because we're going to have to make decisions soon about you know, how this system is going to change. Otherwise, these artists are not going to be able to afford to live. Um, And I think, so, you know, in terms of that, like, we talk about good music journalism, but this article is straight up just one of the best pieces of journalism I've read, period. Like, no music attached to that, like, just period, one of the best pieces of journalism I've read. Um, Because, you know, the artist explains an issue that at least, I mean, I assume this kind of goes for everyone else, but so when you hear Spotify, like, you know, the numbers are low for their per stream payments and you're usually get quoted a specific number, like 75 cents a stream. Right. And then you think, and then you just think, though, that's the number that Spotify pays out the artist. Every artist gets 75 cents per stream. So the more I stream this artist, the more revenue is going to go to this artist, but that's not how it actually works. So the journalist describes how Spotify donates or not donates, I guess, but Spotify sets aside uh, a percentage of their total revenue. So it's between 60 to 70% of Spotify's total revenue 
from the account subscriptions is then set aside and that is what is used to pay the labels and the artist is that 60-70%. That number does not change based on how much you stream your artist. It does not change based on which artist you're streaming. It is purely a block of money that's set aside and that's it. That's the amount that's going to be divided up among whoever it is. So what you do by streaming your artist more is you're giving that artist a higher share of the total streams, which is then what decides how the artist gets paid. But the reason, you know, Spotify is pushing these these playlists, these, um, you know, listen more, auto-playing songs when you're done listening, and all these playlists and stuff are driven to keep people listening longer to increase the number of total streams. But if you think about like the smaller independent artists, which there are tons of interviewed in this piece, like tons and artists that like, you know, which is another good quality of a great journalist is that like this guy has his ear to the ground, you know, like he's going out and he's finding like, who, who is this affecting? Who is this influencing? Like who has the most personal, you know, stuff at stake here? And those are the people that he talks to. He doesn't just go talk to the people who have, you know, the biggest face or the biggest voice or the nicest name for a headline. Like he's directly going to the people that are being impacted the most and he's, you know, listening. Like he's being empathetic. Like you tell me, tell me about this. Tell me how this affects you. And then when he lays out this whole case, he presents it in a way where he's not like the piece is not angled at a solution because as we stated earlier, it's so complex. There isn't like there isn't a solution. You know, the piece doesn't end with a very much like, okay, so literally like all this, I just gave you all this information. Now take this information and I'm telling you, this is the thing that we need to do. Because he talks about like, for one thing, um, just in the simplest terms, you think for artists getting paid more, it would just be as easy as upping the, the price that they get per stream. But what that really means is you're saying that Spotify needs to convert a larger share of their revenue to the revenue pool for artists. And he even goes into detail about how Spotify is not going to do that. And if anything, that that share of the revenue is going to get smaller. Um, and, you know, he breaks down, like you said, the user centric model where uh, so like the money that you spend on your subscription is divvied out by the ratio of artists that you're streaming. But then he even goes into detail on, you know, issues with that, a study where it showed certain independent artists were making less money. And he, like, he just goes through all these different proposed solutions and gives you the information not to like make a decision on it, but to have the knowledge on it for when you do need to make a decision on it. Because like I said earlier, you know, this is, a problem that is coming up right now. Like this is something that it is need to be addressed soon. And it's crucial, crucial to read this piece as a one-stop shop to just like, like now I feel like an informed, you know, if you're thinking of it like voting on something, I now feel like an informed citizen on this topic. And this mm -hmm. context will apply to everything else I learn on this topic going forward. Well, I think about the victory of this article is how, as you say, you get the empathy side of it and you have these artists saying, not just indie artists, artists who are on labels, saying that this isn't enough. And they've been saying that this isn't enough. This has been a fight that's been happening since streaming began. And the fact that now, almost like, what, when did Spotify launch? Like 2014? Six years or something deep? 
Maybe it's, uh, it that. sounds around that. I mean, at least it got big around 2014. Because I'm trying to think of, like, that's when I graduated high school was in 2014. So I'm thinking, like, right. you know, that's kind of when Spotify was clicking. So Yeah. So the fact that it's gone this long and the artists have campaigned and campaigned and campaigned as Spotify grew and grew and grew to be paid more and more. The fact that we're at this point now where a pandemic has hit and this could have been solved ages ago. An artist could and now it's an emergency. Being good now, now it's a big, big emergency for people who rely on this for their income and rely on this to survive. So, um, and you talk about the different models he proposes, and none of them seem sustainable. And it's quite bleak, really. It's disappointing in a way that the system's been set up like this. And it kind of makes you reflect on yourself as a consumer, like, this seemed like the ideal situation because I'm getting all this music for cheap. As I say, like, 10 quid a month and you have all music and recorded history available to you. Who wouldn't yeah. go for that? Yeah, I think but, uh, <laughs> yeah. I think it, it goes back to the, the idea that the only way to fix it is to create an entirely new system. I, I don't think you can... Yeah. I think at the end of the day, for me, I don't think you can put it on the any version of... I'm Not that you're blaming... But I don't think you can put any version of... Um, Blame's not the word I'm looking for, but I'm not going to be able to responsibility. Find it. Uh, yeah, the responsibility, responsibility. exactly mm-hmm. the responsibility on the the consumer. I, I especially just because we're mm-hmm. all specifically yeah. we and everyone is paying for so many specific things that it you know I <laughs> it's one more thing to pay for at the end of the day, and I think it's really mm-hmm. um, while it's it it does seem totally bleak. I think on the more positive side that the only kind of way to attack it is what can we do that we haven't done yet. Um, And I think there is kind of at least a little bit of a hinting in the article at some version of an idea um, that has been something that's kind of slowly been on the rise even since streaming has happened. Um, And this would take a while for it to really get popular. But the uh, increase in vinyl sales, I think, is a very interesting thing to think about specifically. Um, And what what an actual vinyl um, and the sound of a vinyl and what's appealing about that and what you can offer even in a vinyl because of the size of it that you can't really offer in a CD. And um, the idea that independent artists or even major label artists should put a lot more time and energy into selling some version of like a packaged vinyl that offers something beyond the music. Um, I've, I've kind of been dwelling on that thought for a while. And I think that that's really, because there's something about a vinyl that is cool too. It's like appealing to like the hipster part of all of us of getting something that is like, oh, I have this cool piece of something that this guy is really, this guy or girl is releasing. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I also wondered, have been wondering since vinyl has really had a little bit of a comeback, why the big companies aren't investing in it. And I'm just going to say this now, knock on wood, somebody should pay me for this if it ever becomes a thing. <laughs> but I have always wondered why a company like, say, Beats has not thought about putting out a record player that uses some version of the, the, the audio that you get naturally from vinyl and updated it. Um, but I think that bit, not just Beats, but Bose or any of those big companies could yeah. could have a big influence on that being a thing that comes back. Um, or, I mean, the better thing would be have an independent company come out with something that starts to take off in it ra- rather than it being the big companies. But I think um, if there's anything that I've thought about that is an actual lane of 
starting an entirely new way for artists to actually bring in some income and is like upping their game on vinyl. Well, even, you know, you say that, but actually uh, they make a good example in the article of a small company that's on the rise that is doing a lot to help artist revenue, uh, and that's Bandcamp. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, I've heard a lot of good things about Bandcamp too. It just seems to need to be something that more artists catch on to. But yeah, I mean, you you can put your music on Bandcamp, and I think you can put merch and stuff on Bandcamp. Yep. And then every once in a while, um, Bandcamp runs a promotion where they will give a hundred percent of sales to the artists. Oh, absolutely. So you know, s- stick around when that when those sales go up, buy that merch, buy that vinyl, um, and you know that's something that they're doing as you know a streaming service. Oh yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, that's that's super cool. Definitely, I remember that part as as a resource. To, um, yeah, and he and, even mentions that being successful at mm-hmm. driving like independent artist revenue that they've had success with it. Yeah, it's just small scale right now. Yeah, and I think one piece of this puzzle that we've uh, that I think is massive that we haven't really talked on that much is the labels. Oh yeah, and one I thing that Andy uh, brings up about updating the label system. I don't think it was his quote exactly, but he got. A quote in about about the uh, how, selling CDs and the inventory yeah. and yeah yeah because you think about it I as a random person can put music up on Apple Music like I can do that I don't need a label to do that and the fact that labels are still charging artists and take so much from artists for something they could probably just do themselves is extremely outdated and it just adds to the balance of this article mm-hmm. the. Way all the way through it, he throws Andy just throws out these different ideas, gives you this plain information, then gives you these ideas of how we could do this, and gives the disadvantages and the advantages of every single one, so you as a reader can make up your own mind. And he's always on the side of the artist, I think, too. He doesn't say... He makes cases for Spotify why they do what they do, but at the end of the day, I feel like he manages to be balanced but also slightly lean towards the righteous cause, which is paying artists, mm-hmm. you know? And I think he lays out right at the start and he lays out right at the end with a quote from um, Ted Gioia. Gioia? Uh, he's a music historian. And he had a quote. He said, Make no mistake, musicians could run their own streaming and distribution platforms and reallocate that cash towards the people who create the songs. I don't expect any things, any of these things to happen. I'm just saying they could happen, and I think that's what that's speaking on what Mickey said about like giving it to the hands of the people and just revolutionising the way that we uh, receive music as consumers and the way that artists um, control their art really. And I think that's the best case you can make for it. And maybe that sees the demolition of labels. At least, ma- at which least I think ma- is what you're saying. I think the demolition of major labels is kind of an inevitable thing that I hope, honestly, that is is coming sooner than later, sooner rather than later. Yeah. We we probably could have done an entire podcast episode on this piece alone. We like in all could. honest, there's that much content to this, and like you can get it in a 20 minute read. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so much to pull out of it. Like, I. Was so jumbled while like trying to explain this article, just because I can't do it more justice than Andy does himself, really. And that's yeah. So shout out to Andy. Anyone got any final points on that? I mean, there's so many more to make. I think the one <laughs> one thing, like just 
quickly to go over because I know we got like got some other great pieces we want to get to. But also, so when we're talking about um, you know the responsibility and the consumer and the case that Spotify is making, um, Andy points out that Spotify recently contracted Joe Rogan's podcast oh, for a hundred oh, million yeah, dollars. And he said, "What was the number?" He said, "He said you would have to like for a hundred million dollars, you would have to stream 30, something sixty three billion times or something like that yeah and then the way the way he words it is he says that um oh go ahead if you got the quote go ahead yeah a musician would need to generate 23 billion streams on spotify to earn what they're paying joe rogan for his podcast rights in other words spotify values rogan more than any musician in the history of the world sound fair to you (laughs) <laughs> yeah that's ted uh Gio again in which we had actually talked about um on a previous episode of our podcast when we talked about how podcasting was taking over um the spotify's revenue because you know spotify already doesn't have a super solid you know like their own internal revenue system is not that great uh and on that episode we talked about how spotify was like the largest company in the world that was operating at a loss for the like for years yeah. um and how Spotify is turning to podcasts for their revenue. And what that might even mean is like how this issue could backslide even more. Because as Spotify Spotify realizes that podcasts are more profitable for them than music, that 60 to 70% of their revenue share that's going to artists is going to start looking like a really large percent of that revenue share if it's not what's bringing in the money for Spotify. Yeah. Another thing, like, <laughs> I'm sorry to, like, keep No, going there's on, so much on this article. I know, but one thing that made me think of and, like, kind of tripped me out is how, uh, you know how you find an artist problematic or something? You're like, okay, I'm not going to give them my streams. And you say, right. like, I'm not going to give my money to them. But really, just by having a subscription, yes, a portion of your money is going oh my to God. every artist on Spotify. That's such a good and point. I didn't even think of that. Is annoying as hell. You so you're stream money right now, even though you said fuck R. Kelly, I'm not going to stream R. Kelly yeah. anymore. Your subscription money is still being paid out to the millions of streams that R. Kelly gets. You don't have a yep, choice. Just in because that. the people that are streaming R. Kelly, they're making me pay R. Kelly. Oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even I haven't even thought of it like that before. That's that's that makes me so pissed. I'm that, user-centric model all the way. Let's go. That yeah, sounds yeah, the, the, the that sounds the most. <laughs> it's the same. Just like the irony of that feels like such a parallel to the world. Somehow, no matter yeah. how hard you try, you're still contributing <laughs> to to all of the horrible <laughs> things about the world. Is the ethical consumption of capitalism? This is going to be an old episode. If we can no on. kidding. <laughs> okay. Jeez. That's a that's okay, a wild to way to end that section. <laughs> <laughs> I just remembered I wanted to make that point at the start but I forgot about yeah. it okay I dig it Andy you broke our brains a bit yep and that's a testament to your incredible writing dude shout out to um, you man. shout out to you thank you for that piece that is Andy Kush for Pitchfork how musicians are fighting for streaming pay during the pandemic Okay. I guess I'm up next. So now to shift yeah, to something different. totally different, um, but I'll still try to connect the dots a little. Uh, for sure, if they decided to switch uh, the system of Spotify as far as where the funds go, I would be paying uh, the majority of my money to Jonah Yano 
because it is absolutely <laughs> the album that I've listened to the most this year, and it only just came out, but I have listened to it almost every day. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the piece is done by uh, Adrian Vargas from Atwood Magazine, and he does an amazing job, um, I think. Uh, the first thing that I thought was really cool specifically about the interview um, was that I don't think that I've ever read an interview that was prefaced with what feels like an album review before entirely, um, which I thought uh, specifically really worked well for how the rest of the interview went and was just a really cool way to kind of combine, um, I guess you'd call it, different mediums of journalism. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's. I think the, the review itself is really concise and really makes you want to listen to the album. Um, and since I obviously love the album too, I think he breaks it down really well. So I wanted to read a quote, uh, from the review for a debut album souvenir perfectly encapsulates what makes Yano such a talent showcasing the artistry behind the work in gorgeous detail with each song presented almost like an anthology souvenir is an exploration of Yano's personal, personal family history, detailing his parents' separation the absence of Yano's father in, li in his life and the moments in life leading to a long-awaiting reunion. Um, the thing that really, um, from the beginning and still does grab me so much about the album um, is the way that he delivers his mindset and his processing with things really dives into the complicated aspects of love. Um, but normally when we hear, hear uh, artists sing or rap about those topics, um, even when they're purely really interesting and in diving into that, those kind of specific areas, it's usually about a relationship kind of love. Um, but he does it uh, mainly on this album about the kind of complicated aspects of uh, love and struggle within his own family. Um, and I think the thing that is it, it always just staggering to me is his tone at which he delivers it. Um, I don't know. I, I, there's not even much more to say other than it just like is totally grabbing to me every time I listen to the album. And I, I feel like I learned something new about him and the way that his mind works every time I listen to it. Um, I think uh, uh, the, then next he goes in his review into the Sonic stuff and... Um, sets up the interview really well to kind of dive deeper into the album. Um, I think uh, his interview style was really different too. His questions were uh, much longer written out than most interviews and it made it really conversational. It also just seems like Jonah Yano is, is such a good interview subject to me. Like he is literally the dream interview. Um, there's such thought behind his music and purpose, which he has no trouble expressing. Uh, he and his music are, are totally connected and he's just really open. Um, it's hard for me to, 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 uh, even talk about the interview without just going into, to direct quotes, because I think he says it better than I ever could about, uh, his own music. Um, so I, I, I picked, I picked two specifically that I thought, uh, were worth mentioning. Um, when he was asked about the title of the album, he says, I got to souvenir because I, I really like to, I really like connect. Uh, I really like to, I really like collecting little mementos. Like a classic thing that I do is collect rocks. Lots of people do that. I like to like get rocks from little beaches. I go through and 
stuff and keep them in a little pile at home and kind of attach them to things. I thought that that title could also lend itself quite well to music because these songs are are kind of stories I've collected along the way. If I'm like the interviewer listening to that answer of such specificity of how he's thinking about every step of, of, of the process of making his album and how much it really like sums everything up, I feel like that's just such a dream answer and it's such a specific parallel. Um, I just thought that that was really cool. And then when he's asked about if it's easy to share his emotional past through music, he says, I don't think I have any hesitation in sharing very personal stories. If I can uh, relay them in a way that, that is kind of my understanding or my coming to understanding the circumstance. I think if, if I experienced some trauma in my life and it was very raw and I hadn't like sat with it and taking the time and taken the time to understand it, I'm not sure I could feel comfortable telling that story like that. So with a song like Shoes that I've had to like for like 20, 20 whatever years, 21 years to think about, and I had, and I've come to terms with that a long time ago. Along, uh, it was very easy f- for me and felt very normal to tell that story, to put that out there because I've already kind of gone past it. And in October, I went to see my dad. That was kind of like this cherry on top of the proverbial reconciliation. Um, I just think that... Uh, <laughs> When someone has this kind of um, ability to be so open and vulnerable while also so analytical um, as an artist and as an interview subject, um, it just creates kind of an incredible uh, an incredible piece of journalism um, that, that you rarely see in interviews because I think a lot of the time it's kind of one or the other. It's either an artist is deeply, they, the way that they know how to express themselves is through their art and it's kind of the journalist's job to find a way to get them to be able to express that verbally or through their words and it it seems like he's totally connected as an artist um to the music and as well as expressing the thought process behind it so i thought that was really cool what did you guys think yeah that exact thing right there like i love the interview because um adrian just digged into the emotion behind the music and the human experience behind the music and just like understanding like his, his understanding of the album just feels so personal and you can tell it affected him in such a deep way because the questions he had weren't I feel like you get like these cookie cutter interview questions you know sometimes and you can end up getting interviews that just feel like they suck the emotion out of music but I feel like this pumped emotion into it further just this is the best kind of interview really and i think i think you can tell like how like you said like that the interviewer himself himself was emotionally invested in it um i think one just a small thing i noticed that makes that so apparent is when yano is answering his questions you can tell that he's thinking you know Mm -hmm. like because Mm -hmm. even in the transcript there's times where yano says something and then he backtracks on himself and he's like well like, wait a minute, no, actually, I kind of mean, like, so you can tell that Yano himself's not, like, 100% prepared for all these questions. Like, that's how deep the questions that the interviewer are proposing is. Um, and I think, like, like Mickey said, how it felt very conversational, and just the fact that I think that, like, you know, even Yano was thinking so intensely about the questions makes this an interview I would have loved to hear as a podcast, mm. just because <laughs> of how conversational it is. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I wholeheartedly agree. 
I just want to point out, like, I know it's a really bad, like, podcast um, content, I guess, but, like, the interface on Atwood Magazine is beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) No, but seriously, like... the aesthetic is really great, yeah. Seriously, yeah. Like down to the font, down and to the, the font. Way that the, That's literally what I was just thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Down to the, and the way that the um, the titles are written and stuff, like the art, the article relaxed me. I know. Like considering how intense the other two articles are that we have today, I read this one last, and it just felt like detoxing. Mm. And the, the aesthetic of it just led in so nicely to the interview. I had on my lavender candle. I was listening <laughs> to the album at the same time and I was just in a state of just relaxation. Dude, just that's reading this guy tell his stories about his life. That makes so and it's so just That's so funny. I, it makes so much it. sense because I feel like I, I mean this is obviously not on purpose, but that is literally the feeling of the album. It's and what's crazy about yeah, it is yeah. it, it's it, he's doing that while also dissecting these really uh at times very painful things to kind of go mm-hmm. through in his past, but there's something that's so calming about having um that that kind of inherent under human understanding to what he's going through, even if, if your understanding to that specific emotion comes at a totally different context. It's so it's so relaxing, but like relaxing in an almost melancholy way. Yeah. 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 And I thought it was really, really interesting. Like one of the like when it comes down like to the technical aspects of how he makes his music, one of the coolest things that I got out of the interview was, you know, you would think for someone who makes such personal and such emotionally charged music that they would be the kind of just like opens up like entirely when they're making music and then just makes the music sound like they feel just as they open up and it's a, a very natural flowing kind of process but he goes into specifics about how for the most part like when he goes into the studio like he has a specific feeling and a specific sound and a specific mm-hmm. thing that he wants and he keeps reworking and reworking the sound until like i think the direct quote he says is until he feels the way that he sounds. Yeah. He keeps reworking the song over and over until oh it, yeah. like, hits that click for him. Wow. Yeah. I wow. I think, um, I think it's just, so, that that goes back to kind of my point about um, how, how analytical he is about his own music, which I think is just such a rare, I mean, I, it makes me understand why it connects to me because obviously to do music journalism, we one of the main thing kind of like personality traits is some is as journalists. I think is we have a, a an urge to constantly analyze music for what it is and what it's doing and how it's making us feel. But that's not not as common of a thing to hear and 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 see from artists. Um, so yeah, it's it's. It's really interesting that it, it it's so calculated but still feels so natural and um that process I think is so different than any any other one that I've heard about. Yeah, it's a cool way of like having his music kind of catch up to his emotions. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I love the way that this interview just made the music feel so visceral. Yeah. Especially mm. if you're listening to it while you're reading it. It just fits so well. It's like this interview is born like to be on Atwood magazine. Like it wouldn't fit. On a different website, where there's like <laughs> constant pop-up ads and shit font. <laughs> like, oh yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Any other thoughts th- on it? Um. No, I think I think shout I think out- that that sums it up. Yeah. Shout out to uh, shout out mittens. Shout out mittens, yo. 
Shout out Mittens. Shout out Mittens. That was like one of my sure. favorite parts of the interview. Like he goes into this whole detail about how mittens are so good and like so much better yeah. than gloves. And he makes the comparison. This is from Yana. He makes yeah, yeah. a comparison. He was like, you wouldn't like when he's talking about like, you know, mittens are like and gloves are like socks for your hands. And he's like, you wouldn't go around wearing like socks that have little individual slots for each toe <laughs> or like shoes. I mean, some people, they have those shoes for like parkour and shit like that. But for the most part, that wouldn't be comfortable. So, yeah, shout out mittens. You're going to get me a pair of nice mittens. Definitely. It's so great. This interview is so pure. <laughs> it's so pure. So yeah. pure. It made me so relaxed and happy. I know. Anyway, that's perfect. And now to death. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> now to death. Okay, shout out Adrian Varga, shout out Adam Magazine, and your website designer. Give yep. him a raise. Yep. Um, that was Familial Bonds. The name is Article Man. Familial Bonds and the Lasting Impact. Oh yeah, I forgot. A conversation with Jonah Yano. Yeah. What a beautiful name. Yep. So perfect. Brilliantly done to that. Down to the, down to the front. All right, guys. Shout out Adrian Varga. Okay. <laughs> Let's go now. Brandon. All right. So I have been reading and actually just finished um, the book of Yo, which is Yo Phillips um, from DJ Booth. It's just like a collection of a bunch of his articles. And there's a lot of really good stuff in there. But holy shit, is the essay section of that book just stacked. Um, so don't be surprised if, you know, this is probably not going to be the last Yo Phillips essay that I'm going to bring to this podcast. Um but I think just... I was going to say. Yeah, go just ahead. Just like real quick. We should do a week of yo. Because I feel like we could. There's enough. Oh, there's so much. There's so much, there's so much like Five you. weeks of yo, but Easily. I want to do a week of yo at some point. Anyway. Yeah, I'm so, um, so like what, what draws me to yo so much, like the reason I bought the book is just because of how good of a writer that yo is. Like everything else aside, you know, journalism aside, musical, like analytical mind aside, all like you know, strip all those things away like his writing just the way that he puts words in order to make sentences and paragraphs and concepts like is just incredible so this this article is called every rapper is going to die and so will i um and it is you can find it on dj booth because not every one of his collections is on dj booth that was in this book but this one is and it's a five-year-old article um, which I found really interesting as you read, he says something in there about how, like in the article itself, he mentions how he's only been writing about music for, or being paid to write about music for a few years. Um, and I just thought that seemed kind of funny to me, imagining like how like esteemed that he is in music journalism and how good his writing is. And this writing was like at towards the very beginning of his actual career as a writer, like when he was actually making money doing it. Um, so to, inter- to introduce this article, it's basically... Yo is talking about how rappers and producers and stuff envision death through their music and then how Yo thinks about and envisions death himself as a writer. But I think the best way to like actually like introduce this article is just I'm going to read like the first three paragraphs um, like because you like you need to read this or hear this to get an understanding of what I mean when I say that like this man can write like and that that is what makes this particular essay so good to me. So I'm just going to start. I'm just going to read like the first three paragraphs. It was Valentine's Day. 
I stood in the VIP area, surrounded by joyous faces and ambitious strippers, my pockets filled with Washingtons, celebrating the birthday of a woman I didn't know, the cousin of a friend's friend, but I was too sober to carelessly indulge in their festivities. The music was bad, the strippers were average, and I started to zone out. Death. Somehow I found myself thinking about how we would die. I looked at a stripper covered in fluorescent lights. She was rocking lime green stilettos with the body of a basketball mistress and doing the same acrobatics that killed Dick Grayson's parents. She was beautiful, but the worms would feast on her one day. They will devour the man across from me, buying the manufactured lust of a young woman with his old money. They will chew on the cigar-smoking, suit-wearing, drunk buffoon who keeps screaming, Turn up! in my ear. While everyone threw their money, I sat in the rainstorm with death, wondering when, wondering how, and wondering why. Hours after the club, five miles away from my home, my friend fell asleep behind the wheel. It was 4.30 a.m. We were both fatigued from a long night, and I was hoping my playlist of bouncy hits would keep us awake. We were on a bridge. The right side of the car ran up the concrete sidewalk. I freaked out, yelling his name. He awoke and swerved back onto the road, but not before a loud bang confirmed a tire was flat. The car could have flipped over. If another car was coming, it could have been a fatal collision. I could hear the laughter of hidden gods. When If You're Reading This dropped, I stayed stuck on Drake's legend. It wasn't riddled with bars. The singing wasn't anything glorious. But Drake has a way of making the simplistic captivating. I played it again and again, stuck on the fact that Aubrey Graham has death on the mind. Drake's music is about ex-girlfriends, strippers, stripper ex-girlfriends, Toronto, Houston, and stripper ex-girlfriends from Houston, but his music has never entertained the thought of death. He lives a life defined by carpe diem, but legend showed that mortality is weighing on his mind. Drake raps with the sureness as if he's cemented in the game, but there's no way he can be sure about the moment after his last breath. Neither can I. Rapper, artist, or construction worker, we all fear the day we can't predict. Maybe that's why Drake is taking blades to see women, celebrating so hard with his woes. He even said it on Now and Forever. I'm afraid I'm going to die before I get where I'm going. It's unavoidable. No amount of money and celebrity will save you from an expiration date. Do not ask for whom the bell tolls, Drake. So, like... Do, like, how? goosebumps. Like, that's how good that writing is. Just how. Like, this piece hit me hard. Like, I feel like it would hit it anyone gets so, hard. It gets so personal. It, it gets, gets so, so personal. So personal. Like, but that's... I found... Go on. No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. I was going to tell you something completely different. Like, so, when I write recently... When I say recently, I mean, like, for the last months and months and months... Everything that I've written that is like outside of journalism, like whether it's like a poem or like a story or something, is being centered around death, and I don't know why. Like I have no idea why that's what came out of me when I wrote. When I wrote, but like for some reason that would be the theme of everything I wrote. And then, I can't believe I didn't read this article five years ago, but, <laughs> um, the, I guess it just came to my life at the right time because when he had the line in here. Death and art are intertwined, creation and destruction. I'm just gonna let that sit. Like just, just let that sit for a second, because this dude is ridiculous. <laughs> how how has how do you sum up everything I've been feeling? All my art that I've made in the last few months. In one line, five years ago. 
damn. Ridiculous. This guy is just... Like, that's why this article hit me so hard, because, like, it just made me have this whole new perspective on the stuff that I make. Like, I didn't know why I was writing that stuff. It just seemed to come out of me, and that's just, like, I don't know why my mind was there. But when he said that, it just blew me away, and he wrote it five years ago. <laughs> you know? And another quote they had later on in the article is that... um Lately, I feel like I'm right. I feel that I'm writing too much. That the pieces are paper cuts and not stab wounds. I want to lunge these words into your heart, so that my sentences are repeated and regurgitated, passed down like sacred scriptures. Bars. <laughs> like so oh my god. You, like, like I think all of us have talked about how. I know it's just like you now, but like his work rate is ridiculous, and how every single article he puts out just seems to be incredible and he does it so often it seems like every day is a new incredible yo piece yeah two crazy ones this week even that he dropped yeah so the fact that he could say like they're not hitting so hard that i feel like paper cuts it's it's like it's ridiculous like because it feels like more than just a stab wound it feels like wolverine snicking you in your head like <laughs> you know it feels his his words like feel like imprinted onto people because of the this, way that he encapsulates so much like in that line just now and sorry I, exactly I, no that's exactly going. what i was gonna say like it's but, yeah I, it's ironic that he refers to that in this piece and then yet this piece is a stab wound like this that's literally <laughs> what this piece feels exactly. like because you get so like when he talks about um at first you know obviously that 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 lead like that intro is so incredible like if if music journalists got music videos like produce that one like you just picture yo like sitting on the bench at a strip club like money running around him but he's just got like a deadpan just look on his face as he's thinking and then you know like the words like it, it is it's a it's a scene it's so vivid and then he goes into you know talking about how rappers have presented the idea of death how they've talked about death and so you think that like okay like this is a fire lead to this great article that just hinges on how artists have talked about death, but that really makes it a strong essay is how Yo brings his perspective mm. on a creative into it. Mm. And when he said, I mean, okay, there's the line about the paper cuts versus the stab wounds. Um, like that one, like Ryan said, like felt very, very personal to me. But then there was when he says, if I die, I'm a, I wish I could answer that question. I've been in the love with the idea of immortality since I started writing, that I would pen something that would outlive my limitations. Like, it, that, like, it seems so, and, and then he goes directly into talking about the paper cuts and the stab wounds, but doesn't that seem like the creative's curse, like the writer's curse, the rapper's curse, the artist's curse? Like, you spend so much time solely focused on making this art, making this music or this writing that outlives you, that stays forever, that exists mm. forever as this thing that's so much more than the person who created it. But yet, like, while that's your sole objective, I would say, like, most writers, most artists never feel like they get it. They never write that one great yeah. piece or they never drop that one great album. There's always going to be something more than that. There's always something better. There's always ways you can refine it. And yeah. Yo just just puts that down so well in words yeah 
Sorry, I- I'm gonna let Mickey speak in a second. I know you haven't seen the film, but <laughs> like, um, it's such a meditation on what it means to be a writer. I feel like what it means to be an artist, because, um, as you say, the irony in what he said about the stab wounds, because it feels like every your article I read is actually a stab mm-hmm. wound, and you just say it's like it's always something more I could do. I always want to do this, and I had the same thing recently that I just realized like. I've always thought, I wish I connected with my writing more. I wish I feel, I wish I had a, like, I used to think, I wish I had this emotional bond to what I wrote. And it took me, like, until a few days ago that I realised that ho- the whole time I did. The whole time I realised, like, I, like, these articles are an extension of me. They are, like, parts of me that I've just, like, put into words. And for some reason, I, I, didn't think that I had any kind of emotional attachment to them. And it comes to feel like the same thing here. It was like, he always didn't realise that <laughs> all these articles are stab wounds. Even from five years ago, it's like, oh, I want these to be stab wounds. Like, they already are. And as you say, it's kind of like the curse of the writer. But yeah, Mickey, what do you think? Um, well, <laughs> I know that we're all uh, talking about how our deep passion for writing and how much yo is hitting us <laughs> but i have to say before anything else how much i love an awkward strip club scenario <laughs> like that shit i immediately when i started reading it i just like i've i've been to a strip club two times in my life both in college i was so broke and i was like why the fuck am i here <laughs> so that like, so that was the strip club was the relatable part of I was just I was just like this is I couldn't help but like take a step back from like the depth of it for a second and just laugh at how funny it is <laughs> thinking of a dude just sitting yes. in a strip club just being like pondering death <laughs> just being like oh man what's it gonna be like when I die will I leave an impression are people gonna <laughs> Are people going to remember all these articles that I wrote? And a girl's, like, clapping her ass, like, (laughs) a foot in front of you is, like, literally so funny. And I also get it, though, at such a deep level because of the two times that I've been to a strip club, I just understand how it can make you think about death because a strip club, a connection that I made, I think a strip club feels like purgatory. (laughs) <laughs> oh shit! like i think that it feels like what the world would see because it's a totally separate universe that you're like what the fuck is going on here but i feel like the choices that i make will have some impact on my future <laughs> you know what i mean like like, <laughs> like like i just think like you you come out of there even if very little happens you feel like you entered into a new world that will impact the rest in, in a very, like, nonsensical way. And I feel like every way that I've looked at seeing purgatory and art kind of feels like that. Like, I, I remember also... I, okay, I can't believe I'm telling this story. I literally didn't mean to. The first time I went in... <laughs> okay. The first time I went into a strip club, it was in Miami, Florida. I went to U of Miami, and we were across the street. And uh, there was this really shitty strip club. I don't remember the name of it. I really wish I did. Uh, and we went in and I was like, I'm so broke. Why the fuck am I even here? I'm in college. There's literally no reason. I feel like a fraud. I'm not even going to go up and get ones out. (laughs) I don't feel like asking my friends for money. I know I shouldn't spend anything. And I'm sitting at the bar. I have like a beer and I like locked eyes with a stripper 
She walked all the way over to me, grabbed me right in the dick and was like, do you want to come to the back? And I was like, <laughs> what the fuck? I, but it really felt like this, like I froze and saw my whole life before me. And I was like, <laughs> I was like oh my God. Like I did, th- I'm literally two minutes into this, have no money. There's no way I can go back there. But this feels like a really like crazy, like immediately when I walk in there, like someone confronts me about how I'm not supposed to be there by grabbing me in the dick. And it was just like, <laughs> and I just like, so there's something that connects me of that experience to the article of just like the feeling of a strip club making you contemplate about your whole life. Like, how did I end up here? Especially with his scenario where he's like a friend of a friend of a friend and he came to this party and he's at a strip club and he doesn't know why he's here and it's awkward. I just get it. And then I, I also think it also made me think of that. I don't know if you guys have watched six feet under, on HBO, um, but it's one of the, like, early HBO shows with Oz from the 90s, um, but basically it's about a family that owns a funeral home, and each episode starts out with, um, kind of a scene of someone dying who ends up at the funeral home being, you know, uh, and the family hmm. works on them. It's really interesting if you never watched the show, but, um, when I then read, I don't think you got to it, Brandon, but when I then read the part about them falling asleep on the highway and almost dying, I was like, oh my god, yo if they could do this thing where they had like a voice behind him while he's sitting in the strip club contemplating about death and then Literally, in the like car a music on video. the way home, but in, in the show, obviously he would like peel off the highway and die. And then it would, the show would start and you'd tell the story about his life. <laughs> but I was like, dude, that would be such an amazing intro to that show where it's just like this dude in a strip club who's kind of awkward. And then you just hear his thoughts about death while it's all going on. And then he actually ends up dying. I was like, damn, because he he paints it so vividly yeah so vividly yeah and then i mean like we so we've been talking about like i said like which yo is an amazing writer we've been talking about so much of like the writing that makes this good but then like we we haven't even like hardly touched on how much detail he goes into on the musical analysis of things um like so you know he talks about drake how you know, no amount of superstardom is going to protect Drake from death. He talks about Tupac and Biggie, and he talks about how Tupac and Biggie constantly rapped about death, and it felt like they were always, um, I think he even uses the analogy, in the passenger seat with death. Um, and, you know, even as confident as they were in their life, like, they still died. And he talks about, you know, Kendrick Lamar, who Kendrick worries about being remembered after death, and, like, if the impact that he leaves behind. And then when he talks about Flying Lotus and he says, you know, Flying Lotus explores death, his whole album, You're Dead, is how Yo imagines what death would sound like. So he talks about all these ways and how different they are that artists represent death. Which, speaking of, you know, and the personal impact of the piece, um, like, I I did, like, I mean, it was pretty obvious to include Flying Lotus's You're Dead in this piece about death. But, of course, like, you know, that jumped out at me because I was like, yes, yo, like, yes, because I wrote, you know, I wrote a whole thing on um, Pink Floyd and Flying Lotus and Childish Gambino and how their music, like, the sonic turmoil of their music reflects you know kind of turmoil of existence and stuff like that uh so i wrote like a big thing on flying lotuses you're dead exactly like you know how yo says like it sounds like death and like all these different ways that artists have explored it and yo in his own way is one of these artists and this is like his exploration of death 
Um, yeah, we, talking about like the the Biggie and Tupac, I the article really made me think specifically, and I talked about this earlier when we were doing our top albums about posthumous albums that have come out recently, and I think kind of a. a a crazy thing specifically with like Biggie and Pac is Very in, relevant, in their yeah. posthumous albums um, and with Juice World, Pop Smoke and Mac Miller, um, how, how in each of those albums, there's at least one, I think multiple on each of the albums, specific songs where they've referenced their own death, that those songs were already recorded. Like every single posthumous album has at least one song where the artist is talking about their own death. And I think that's really kind of a wild thing that I've been noticing specifically with these last three. Yeah. It's, it's kind of eerie. And I mean, even, um, like before their death, like they, you know, just how much that certain artists have like talked and reflected on death. Yeah. 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 It says death and all intertwined. Yeah. And I think creation structure. Yeah, I I related a lot to the to the the Drake comparison about how well I mean that's kind of why we become journalists a little bit too is because we connect specifically to how an artist's journey is or the things that they say and we want to write about it and we feel that connection as a writer the way people feel that connection to making music and um, yeah when the the feeling he seems to have with listening to Drake and then and that line and having the same intention with life made him, made him think about his own mortality, as I mentioned before, is really like when Mac passed, I really felt that way for the first time through music just because we were the same age. And then Baltimore and Pittsburgh are, are just like two rival sports cities. They're kind of have, there's something about, I've been to Pittsburgh too, and it's, it's a different city, but there's like an energy of like a small town that's also a city in Pittsburgh that feels very similar. And I mean, obviously we're both, you know, white kids who grew up listening to a lot of rap. Um, and I, I, I mean, as much as that, you know, that is a reality of it. And there was just something about like us being literally the same age and having backgrounds that I felt like connected, um, that it really, it really made me think about what it would be like at 26 at the time if, if it all ended. Um, and uh, a little bit on the same level of like, what did I have to show for it? Specifically because at that point, Mac had released, I think, I, I remember writing a, like a tweet about it at the time. He had released something crazy, like six or seven albums and like se- seven or eight mixtapes and he was only 26. And I was like, wow, I, I feel like I he really even in the short period of time that it, it has been for me feeling living like a 26 right. year old life, he had really left something um, to remember him by. And I feel like that gives like, I mean, at least for me personally, like that gives me those like moments of like existential panic where I'm like, you know, like what Yo said, I haven't written, I haven't written that thing yet, you know, that great thing. And I could be in a car and flip off the highway tomorrow. And you know what, like what's like, is, is the legacy that I've left behind the one that I want. You know, and I, I feel like that's something that writers think about a lot. And it's, you know, part of the reason that they write is caring about, you know, what's, what's left behind them. I actually had this um, discussion sort of with my older brother the other day where, cause I, you know, I've, I don't want to have kids. Um, and you know, I, I, we were kind of talking about talking to my older brother about that. And he said, one of the reasons that he wants to have children is because it feel he feels like it'll make him, like immortal in some way, you know, like some piece of him will continue on. And then I was like, okay, like, that's how, you know, that's how I feel about my writing. 
right. you know? And, you know, a kid obviously is not you. Like, it's some version of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's different. My writing, like, the stuff that I write and I put it down, like, it might – I might in the future, you know, change the way I feel and change the way I think. But each piece of writing that's put down – is immortalizing, like, my feelings, my thoughts at that time. At that time, yeah. Um, and there's a big part that actually that Kendrick talks about when he, when, and with the way that Kendrick refers to Tupac, um, being that, you know, Tupac was gone too soon. And even all the posthumous work that we got from Tupac is still his state at the time of his death or before the time of his death. You know, you never get to see how Tupac's thinking and how his music evolved as he got older and had more experiences and changed. Like, we only get in that posthumous out-like stuff, we only get the immortalized version of that artist at the time that they recorded that music, or, you know, at the time that they died. Yeah. I don't think we have anything else to add. I think yeah. we should end it there. Yeah, I think it's a good one. <laughs> that that kind of heavy. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. the fact that this piece made us have, like, well, of existential crisis is a good thing. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Also, I want to say, yeah, I want to say once and for all, I I think at the end of the day, it's really fuck strip clubs. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> That's the main message to take from this entire episode. Yeah, from beginning to end. Especially if you're especially if you're broke, don't go in there. I learned the hard way. <laughs> if you're broke and you're a writer, don't go to a strip club. There you go. There you go. I'm going to text you after this and say, we just recorded the podcast and we had an ex- existential crisis, so <laughs> thanks, mate. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, seriously though, thank you to you for that piece. Thank you for Brandon for digging it out from the recesses. And yeah, uh, that's Every Rapper is Going to Die and So Will I by Yo Phillips for DJ Booth. And that's the episode. So yeah, thank you for all listening. Uh, remember to subscribe well, if you've already subscribed, if you listen to this, uh, review us on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you get your podcasts. Uh, sign up to the Central Source uh, mailing list. Sign and my up to mailing, list. mailing list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, man, I got you. And um, oh, there's something else, but I forgot. Yeah, Didn't if matter, you're, if you're a writer, send us your writing. Oh yeah. Or if you are, or if you are oh, following, yeah. Yeah. if you are following small writers that you really like, uh, send us their writing. Definitely. You know, we want to we want to feature a lot smaller writers on this show too. Yeah, so we know you're out there and you're writing good shit. So, absolutely, for sure, for sure. It, we could do yo every week, but I think we should mix it up a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, goodbye from me, Brandon. You want to sign off? Yeah, this is uh, Brandon Hill, Central Sauce. Thanks for listening. Yeah, Mickey Allen back, Central Sauce. Peace out. All right, guys. See you on the next one. This episode of Insert a Source featured Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill, and Mickey Hillerback of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth Moment Podcast Network. Music for the show is Fuck Shut Up by Barsty, and it's Joe Breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source Fifth Moment Podcast Network production. Thanks for Barsty, Joe Breakers, Central Source, the Fifth Element, and content covered in this episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.